Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. And I'm here as always with my friend and my colleague and my co-host. Sounds like I'm introducing three people. (laughs) My friend and my colleague and my co-host, Ross, Rachel, and... Chandler. <laughs> no, all three in, in a Trinitarian sort of are bound up in the one person of Ross Ferguson. What How I'm, are you, brother? What I'm laughing about is there'll be some people listening who have no idea the connection of Ross, Rachel, and Chandler. <laughs> we're, we, we are both off that age yeah. where we've watched that entire series. Well, you know, my daughter, who's 22... Something like she got into friends. Yeah. I mean, we never, they weren't even born. Yeah. When it, I don't think when it ended. Yeah. And we, of course, you know, Becky and I watched it when we were young. And then suddenly she got into it yeah. and was like, so there's a generational thing somehow in yeah. syndication. People are watching it, I guess, but not that we're recommending that show to listeners of the For the Church podcast. <laughs> you okay? Yeah, we're doing good. Yeah. We're doing good. You know, I got a big announcement. Okay. For this episode. Oh, wow. Are you going to wait till the end for this episode No, I'm going to well? tell you right now. Okay. It's my birthday. It's your birthday today. Well, the day that this oh, episode comes come out. out. <laughs> Not the day that we're recording this. I just this. ruined the secrets behind. But the day, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, surely they know we record ahead of time. Yeah, we're not doing live. This is not live <laughs> from the Spurgeon studio. This is recorded from the Spurgeon studio. But okay. the day this, Lord willing, the day this podcast episode comes out, November 1st, is my birthday. Wow. Yeah. Well, happy birthday. Thanks very much. <laughs> and now, when it's really November 1st, you don't have to tell me. I don't have to. Because you told me on, yeah. what's today? September? September's Something. whatever day. Yeah. <laughs> it's so busy this month. This is why also we don't do hot takes because we're, we're recording. We're, we're, we don't even know ahead. when the takes are coming <laughs> to, be, to be hot about them. So are you, on this day off your birthday, uh-huh. are you a big celebration guy? Do you want to do things? Is it just you and Becky doing something? Uh, yeah, no, I don't. I'm kind of a low-key guy. Okay. I don't want to just kind of <laughs> hang out. I'm the exact opposite. You want a deal? You want a party I'm celebration? birthday day, birthday week, birthday weekend, oh, wow, birthday no, month. Come on. We have like, the, we, yeah. Birthday month? Like, birthday month. Oh my word yeah i mean i share the month with thanksgiving so i'm not gonna like you know hey y'all your thanksgiving needs to revolve around me because it was my birthday 24 days ago i basically start selling my birthday at the start of the month miriam's birthday is on in the same month on the 17th mine is the 6th so we celebrate mine all the way up to the 16th (laughs) then we give miriam one day and then we celebrate mine again oh my word i'm a big into birthdays okay yeah I used to be, when I was a little kid, I was big into birthdays because that's what little kids do. They get big into birthdays. No, funny birthday story. So when I was itty bitty, because my birthday's on November 1st, we always had my birthday party on the night of Halloween and we do a costume party. And so my cousins and all my friends from church and everything, they all come over and we'd dress up and we would have a party and then we would go trick-or-treating and then we were told we can't go trick-or-treating anymore because of, you know, culturally things that were happening and Christians don't do Halloween. And if, you know, I'm sure we have listeners that are of that mindset, not denigrating that. But in a way, it was like, not only did I not have the Halloween anymore, it took my birthday party away. <laughs> so every now and then again, I would still have a birthday party, but it was no longer like a big to-do with bobbing yeah. for apples and yeah. people dressed up like Luke Skywalker. And, <laughs> you know, none of us, you know, were like, occultists or anything we were just a costume party and it was a, a lot of fun and then that got taken away so like my birthday had this sort of like oh it's not like it used to be so anymore. what you're actually saying is that next year yeah you want a full celebration but that's not the big number next year is it the big number's two years away 
Yeah, I'll be 40. So today, quote unquote, <laughs> November 1st, I'm 48. Yeah. So, so I in a couple of years time, maybe we need to do a big <laughs> dress up bobbing for apples party. That'd be fun, actually. Yeah. I, yeah, if yeah, if I make it to fifty, let's do that. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll probably drown in that apple bowl, but you know. <laughs> hey, it's a mailbag episode today. We've got some great questions submitted by our listeners who are getting really creative with yeah. their submission <laughs> yes. strategy. So I will post on Twitter and on Facebook, two different Facebook pages. In fact, hey, we're going to record a mailbag episode. What questions do you have? People will reply. But now they're like, they're putting <laughs> questions in comments. They're yeah. putting questions in emails. They're putting questions in reviews. Reviews. How to ask a question. Here's my question. One of our questions today comes from a review, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, people are getting, and and, and they're also, I'm sure they text you. They yeah, text so they, you. Te- they text me, they too. Text like me. So I get stopped in class. So this is oh, the weird thing of like working, studying, and living on <laughs> campus. Yeah. There was a guy that came up to me in class. And he was like, hey, Ross, love the Ford the Church podcast. I've got a question for you. And he asked the question. I'm like, you you want an answer for that now? And he went, no, no, no. Do the it on the podcast. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I just okay. don't remember. I want people, like, I know that if you're just not seeing the call for questions on social media, then you can't put your question in there. But it's hard for me to keep track. I think maybe yeah. we should maybe create an email. Can we get an maybe? email? That's like questions Ooh, at podcast or something like that. We've been firing some ideas behind the scenes to yeah. some of our guys, so maybe maybe we could do we that. Can, we'll get an email maybe set up where you can send your questions it, at who, any time. Who you does don't have that? to wait for ask, me to ask for them. Is it Ask Pastor? There, ask Pastor what? There, there is somebody does it. Piper doesn't ask, ask Piper, Pastor John. Ask Pastor John. Is it does like he, APJ? Something like I mean, do we need to do like Ask FTC? Yeah, or oh. mailbag at mailbag at for the church for the church oh, okay. or FTC.co or something good idea. Like that. I think we should float that. Okay, we'll float that idea. But here's some questions that we did get from a variety of sources. This one comes from Mark on Twitter. What are some of your go-to devotional resources? Thank you, Mark, for that question. What are some of your go-to devotional resources, Ross? <laughs> Do you know what I'm going to say? My go-to resource is the Bible. Well, <laughs> that's right. So I, I, I'm not a massive fan I'm of uh, devotional Why did I resources? include this question? I, don't, I, should, I just assume. I feel really have... bad because one of our professors has also just re, uh, written a devotional. So he, here's what I'm going to say is Bible reading is my number one go-to. What I like to complement that with is something that's a little bit light explanation just yeah. to kind of get my, my brain thinking a little bit. So I'll use Warren Wearsby's With the Word. Okay. Not necessarily promoting Wearsby, just kind of saying that with the word is a chapter by chapter. It's like a single page overview of that chapter all the way through scripture. So I like reading the chapter and then reading Wearsby just to kind of get those yeah. thoughts. Uh, kind of It's quite application based. So just trying to push that. Outside of that, I'm not a fan of the day one devotional, 30 days in this, 60 days in that. And my main reason is because it's not scripture <laughs> and it'll have a verse or it'll ask you to yeah. read. But I feel like what I want to do is, is almost train my mind to be thinking devotionally through scripture without using resources. So, yeah. yeah the, the, the phrase go to implies sort of a recurring. Yeah. So I don't really have that, Mark. I'll, I'll give you three devotionals that I have used in the past that I really enjoyed. I, I'm not an avid devotional user today. It's been a number of years since I've used mm. a devotional that I can recall, at least. You know, I have probably have used one here or there, but nothing that comes to mind. I'll give you two that, well, three that I've used in the past that I really enjoyed. One is a series, actually. I think it's just two volumes from D.A. Carson called For the Love of God. 
And it is, it's just a daily Bible reading devotional. I think he works through, if I'm remembering right, the McShane Bible reading plan. So there's additional readings that he's not necessarily doing devotional writing on, but if you keep up with the the devotional mm-hmm. and the extra readings, you read through the whole Bible in, in a year. I really enjoyed those. Carson just has a unique yeah. sensibility. It's a different kind of devotional. I really enjoyed those when I went through them probably over 10 years ago or so, but I've still got both of those. I have quoted from those devotionals. Mm-hmm. There's some good things in there that I've used in my books and things still. So I, I would recommend Carson's For the Love of God, Volume 1, Volume 2. I don't know that there's Beyond Volume 2. I enjoyed a, a little devotional. I forget what the publisher is, but I, th- I feel like it was one of those mass market yeah. deals. Hendrickson or one of those put out a devotional f- based on the writings of Martin Luther, and okay. it was called Here I Stand. Hmm. And I still have a copy of this on my desk in, in my office at home. It's good if I just want – I also have like a little thing. It's just called Daily Luther. I haven't used that as a devotional, but I've used it just to kind of, you know, pop around in, yeah. you know, find some cool Luther quotes. But Here I Stand, which was a daily readings with Martin Luther, really enjoyed that. And then Ray Ortland has a devotional on Romans 8. Okay. And it's called Passion – oh, gosh, I should have written these things down. Passion for God. Anyway, look up Ray Ortland devotional Romans, and you'll find this book. <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed that, but yeah. I love Ray's writing anyway. But, yeah, I'm just not a The only time I guy. really, I guess, dip into is Christmas and Easter. So – I like Easter devotions, like the week up to Easter. But yeah. again, it always points you back to passages. Last Christmas, we, um, both Miriam and I, read your Christmas kind of devotional oh, and Ronnie up. Martin's as well. Well, you know, <laughs> it's time to purchase them before I mean, yeah, Christmas it is November. Out. It's time to get it's your time, Advent devotional. Time plug, plug, plug. But, but even Gifts then, of Grace by Jared C. Wilson. It's... <laughs> Just don't don't tell him Ronnie's title. Okay, um, hey, I found it. A Passion for God by Ray Ortland. Okay. It's a devotional through books, uh, prayers and meditations on the book of Romans, so not mm-hmm. just Romans 8. He has a little book on Romans 8. But, yeah. I, th- I think the Christmas devotional, even in that, I wasn't necessarily reading it as a devotional. Okay. I was reading it as a book. As a book. And I think we're not saying they're wrong. I guess me and you are just not huge users yeah. of devotionals. So I shouldn't have picked Mark's question, in other words. Sorry, Mark. Because we don't have great No, <laughs> our, basically question. our advice is, uh, here's a few things to try. But. Yeah, okay. This question comes from Ed on Facebook. It's actually, I think this is our friend Ed Romine. Ed on Facebook says, are parsonages a good idea or should a pastor rent or own his yeah. own home? This sounds like we should, we're giving financial advice, which we should probably <laughs> give some disclaimer right here. Like, <laughs> this is not uh, yeah. official financial advice. I also want to just check in on a word as well. So parsonage is the U.S. word for the U.K. manse. In in the U.K. it's a manse or a vicarage, uh, depending on kind of what. Vicarage. Yeah. Well, that's like Church of England, Church of Scotland. (laughs) But just so you know what we're talking about, we're we're talking about a a house provided By by the church. So I have a twin answer on this. Okay, I don't know what my answer is. Oh, okay. I think it just depends on. Yeah. I mean, I could see. I, I I've never had a parsonage. Okay, we rented when I pastored in Vermont, and we rented from church members who gave us a good deal yeah. on our rent. They went yeah. as low as they could because it was the pastor. That's the closest yeah. we've come to, I guess, this kind of thing. But I've never had a parsonage. I've heard pro and con. Yeah, I could imagine thinking it was a good idea if I wasn't being paid very much. Yes. 
I can't afford a suitable home yep. for my family. Therefore, it's nice that the church provides me a home. But yep. I've also heard some nightmare stories. So I've actually experienced all three. So okay, the there we go. The church has rented somewhere for us. Okay. The church has bought somewhere for us. Actually, there's four. The church has given me a, a down payment so that we could buy. And the church has provided a parsonage just straight up. This is the home we've got. So we've kind yeah. of experienced the spectrum. We've had bad and we've had good. My answer is yes and no. Yes, the church should look at how to offer housing to pastors. No, it doesn't always have to be a parsonage. And here's a few things. If you're going, yes, it's a parsonage, so this is a, a house you own as the church, a few things to be aware of. It must be well-maintained. It must have a budget toward it so that it can be well-maintained. And what I mean by well-maintained is not, you know, the little handyman in church going in to patch things up. I mean, properly well-maintained. Keep it up to date. <laughs> yeah. You know, if things are out of date, time to replace them. And also a real blessing to a, a pastor's family is to give them the freedom to decorate kids' rooms, to adjust things to their family needs. You know, if you've got a family with five kids and the kitchen table's a bit tight for them to, you know, look at options type thing. So well-maintained, good budget, freedom to fit with that family and in that location. Now, in terms of one situation we were in, the house was in the wrong place for the school. It was too small and it needed quite a bit of work. So the church actually sold the house, gave us a budget and said, go and pick a house go and find somewhere. This is your budget. We're not going to go over that. Go and find it. And we said, we found one. We loved it. And they said, fine, done. We'll buy it. That's the home that you're looking for. So there was that freedom where they paid for it and dealt with it. We also had the church that said, look, we have a sum of money. It will be your down payment. You go and look at a property. You will own the house. And if you leave, the contract stated, if you leave the church, you pay us back the down payment within three months, as in you need to sell the house and give it, give the down payment back to us. So we got to choose our own property. We've also been in a church that just said, look, here's the rental. This is how much we're willing to pay towards rent. You can pay more rent if you want, but we will give you this amount of housing allowance towards rent. And what I would say is I recently posted something along those lines on Twitter and we heard a lot of stories from people that were in bad situations, yeah. awful homes. Please don't do that. If you're going to offer a home, as in we're not saying cash, but like a home, yeah. a house, don't offer well, something that's Well, here's the problem bad. because, I mean, you, that advice is great for churches. I'm picturing the young minister or just the minister who's moving to a church, becoming its pastor, yeah. being offered any yeah. of those situations, yeah. uh, in particular a situation where the church is providing. Yes. You often don't know going in. They're not going to say, by the way, we're real you know, persnickety yeah. about this place. You can't change it. You know? Yeah. It's these things, every nightmare I, you know, story I'm familiar with is something that they've discovered. Yes. Oh, we learned that we couldn't do this. Or yes. we learned that because it's owned by the church, there were people coming in all night and day and people, you know, yeah. stopping by and, you know, my wife is there by herself and, you know, it's making her uncomfortable. She yeah. feels like it's not really her home or she can't yeah. do the kitchen the way she went, you know. They discover this as they yeah. go. And so it makes it difficult to say, yeah, full speed ahead, man. This is a great yeah. idea. Do it. Because you just don't know very yeah. often. Unless you have the conversation ahead of time yeah. to walk through, hey, what's the culture going to be yeah. like? What are the expectations going to be? What, as you said, what can we change, not change? Yeah. What freedom do I have in yeah. this space to make it our own? Can my kids make their rooms their yeah. own? All of those sorts of things. Yeah. Who's responsible for maintaining the thing? Yeah. 
you know, put all a, of that. Put a pack together. So if you're yeah. offering a parsonage, put a like almost like cultural pack. This is what we expect from you. This is what you can expect from the church. I think the very best option, if if this is possible, is to stump up a down payment for a purchase of a property. And the mortgage is the pastor's responsibility and they own the home. And if they ever yeah. move out or they can pay early, if they stay long enough, they can pay back the down payment, but no, no extra interest. You know, the church is not to make money from this. They just, you know, money goes in and money goes out type thing. And that means you're doing two things. You're helping the pastor have a financial future. Yeah, they're building uh, equity. And, big, yeah. Building equity. And also they have their own home. But also as a church, you're also helping a little bit of buy-in as well because you're saying, hey, this church has been really generous as well. That's a, a great loving thing to do. And we had that twice. And that was such a wonderful blessing for us as a family because a lot of this negative parsonage type stuff just disappeared because it was a financial contract, not a not a practical one. One thing I would say is this is a really great option. All these options are really great if a church doesn't have an, a lot of funds to pay as a salary. And if I can say this, pastors that are listening, if your church doesn't have a huge fund for your salary and they're offering a house, understand that that is a big offering Yeah, because we know that a rent or a mortgage plus bills plus maintenance is a lot of money. It's usually your biggest a, bill. B- yeah. Biggest bill. So if the church is taking that biggest bill away from you, don't frown upon a slightly lower salary yeah. because actually this is a good package coming your way. The problem will always come, and this is not the question, but the problem is, can people abuse that situation absolutely on both sides? Yeah. Are parsonages a good idea, Ed? Sometimes. Should a pastor rent or own his own home? Sometimes. (laughs) It all really depends. Okay. This comes from Matt on Twitter. Matt, or is it X now? I don't know. We're still calling it Twitter. We're still calling it Twitter. I'm calling it Twitter. I don't care what Elon says. Matt on Twitter says, should snowbirds, seasonal members, and people who travel a lot be considered for leadership in the church? Ooh, this question hits close to home. Close to home for I'm you. I'm not a snowbird. I'm not a seasonal member, but I am somebody who travels a lot. Yeah. I remember, so I grew up in South Texas, and we had what they called winter Texans. Yeah. And it was this group of people who typically lived in the north, a lot of Minnesota and Michigan. And, and when winter would hit, they, and it's usually older members, retired, who, who had the freedom to do this. They would get in their, their RV or their, their big uh, you know, mobile, whatever it is, and drive on down to the yeah. Rio Grande Valley. Yeah. And they would live in Brownsville, Texas for three months yeah. because it's winter. And we called them winter Texans. That's kind of who I had in mind here with this yeah. first part of the question. I would actually, these are really kind of three, three separate, separate categories. Yeah. Should they be considered for leadership in the church? And I, I'm going to say... I'll be more detailed on the people who travel a lot in just a second. But uh-huh. I'm going to say generally no. No, I was going to say <laughs> generally no as well. no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if somebody's not with the church year round. Yes. So I would even, like the snowbird, the seasonal member is different than someone who just travels a lot. Yeah. Although it could be someone travels so much they shouldn't be in leadership yeah. also. But I would kind of separate those out. Yeah. If there's like seasons of the year that someone's just in a different yeah. state, a different city or whatever. Yeah. I don't think they should be considered yeah. for church leadership. I, I had no, and I had, if they're... Maybe a seasonal committee or something. I, well, that's you what know, I, was, I don't that, know. That's what I was going to say is if they're in your church at Christmas time, winter time, maybe have them lead a ministry at that time. Or maybe they're always at your church in the summer and they're really active in kids' ministries. Maybe help them lead VBS or something like that. But in terms of church leadership, which is basically pastor, elder, deacon, even to some extent, if you're still committee-based... 
I have a tendency to say no because I just I don't think you're there enough. Yeah, you have to be in the rhythm of the life of the church, yep. which is a year round. You could thing. be a support. You could be that kind of at the end of a phone, a support to the deacon, to the pastor, to the elder, yeah. to the committee. But I don't think you could be those things. Now, you know, the question traveling came up, a lot. Yeah, I mean, what, what is a lot? <laughs> I travel a lot. So, so you, this question came up the, the the first time I was asked about whether I'd be interested in, in being considered for elder at, at Liberty Baptist, there was, you know, probably three or four reasons I said no. But one of them was I wasn't sure I was around enough. Mm. I think I was around enough to be an effective member. I was leading the residency, those sorts of things. But in terms of like being a pastor, I just thought I probably travel too much for that to be effective. Well, you may be 50% of weekends you're away. I, I don't know I if might it's be that pushing many, but it, it's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, especially in the fall, it's, it's pretty considerable. The second time I was asked, I thought, okay, there was a particular point in our church life where I thought, I think I could be of help, but I still don't know. Mm. I, I want to maybe put this in the hands of the elders themselves and say, well, what do you guys, do you yeah. think I would be? I mean, that's really the question is not, do I think I could be of help? I think yeah. I could, but with my travel schedule, do you, would I be of help to you? Or yeah. would you constantly be like, where's Jared? Yeah. And, you know, we started to sort through and it was like, can you be at, you know, 90 something percent of the elders meetings? Well, yeah, we can. Yeah. And so at our elders retreat, you know, after I was brought on at the elders retreat, we look at the year ahead, the calendar, what do I know is coming up? And we all do that. And it turns out I don't miss any more elders meetings than some of the other elders yeah. do for a variety of reasons. Their yeah. wife just had a baby or yeah. whatever it is. I maybe miss one or two a year. So I can be at every elders meeting. Okay, now am I in church enough to lead well and for yeah. people to recognize? The question I had this this most recent time when I was asked, the question I had for them was, was there a, a significant number of folks who nominated me from the yeah. church? Because that would be an indication yeah. to me that the church sees me. As, as not role. somebody who's yeah. a vacant person. Yeah. And they said, yes, you had a significant number of nominations. I was like, okay, well, that's a good indication yeah. of at least wanting to say. They know you, you're there. Yeah, but also like, okay, I'll put this in the church's hands then. Yeah. I'll see if the congregation, and it came up in the, the form. There were three of us that were being sort of assessed at the same time, Pastor Sam, Pastor Jacob, and myself. Before, you know, as we're being considered, there's like a forum where there's mm. a Q&A. And Someone from the congregation asked, asked yeah. a question, like, how will your travel schedule affect yeah. these sorts of things? And I said, well, you know, there's a plurality here. That's one of the considerations yep. for this. Uh, someone who travels a lot, is it like three elders? Well, if you've got three elders, you know, three pastors or three people on this committee of leadership mm. or whatever, and one of them is gone a quarter of the time, mm. that's probably a significant hit. But if you have, like we do, eight elders yeah. and, and one of us is traveling quite a bit, yeah, we can shoulder the load yeah. enough where I can have my responsibilities and it and it works out. So it yeah. it depends. It depends I think. what it is, and it also depends why you're traveling as well. So so okay. if you're traveling for you, you know you're in corporate world, you work in those jobs. I, I know one of our church members is a lawyer, and he's been traveling a lot more. That is one thing. There's also another thing where where you travel a lot for conferences, speaking at churches. I don't travel that much, but I do quite a fair bit of pulpit supply. So I end up being out a few weekends fairly yeah. regularly. That's, I feel like that's an extension of the church's ministry, yeah. that actually the church can be blessed by your traveling speaking or by itinerant ministries or pulpit supply, whatever, that you're bringing greetings, you're connecting those churches together, you're, you're extending the familial feel to multiple other churches, even making connections that other church members can benefit from, holidays, vacations, all these different things. So I think there can be actually benefits to have leaders who do travel, especially if it's involved yeah. in a ministry context. 
the key thing is always going to be, and I love how you put it, put it in the hands of the church. Be open to the church. Hey, this guy travels about this amount of time. You can manage this and here and that. How do you feel about it? Do, do you, right. Would you be willing to have that? Because we as a team think the benefits outweigh the negatives, but but do you feel that? And if the church came back to you and said, uh, we, we don't think that you should be, not only do they have every right to do that, right. but that's also a signal to you to decide, do I want to travel the yeah. same amount Am of time yeah. for this role, uh, for my other role, or do I actually want to curtail that and actually be more of an elder or more of a pastor? Yeah. Is that what I want to do? So it can be a good signal for the church to kind of knock it down as well and say, if you really want to do this, we, we want you to change some. Yeah, I think one of the things that you may ask is, is the person, would it be a surprise to others, the person who travels a lot, I'm considering them as an elder or as a deacon or whatever mm. it is, what, what do you think the congregation would say? Would yeah. they say, you know, who's that? Or, <laughs> or would they say, oh, him? Yeah. You know, if it would be a surprise to them, if you feel like there would be some kind of concern, it's at, it's at least worth reconsidering. Yeah. Does, it's not an automatic no, like it, it would be, I think, for these sort of seasonal, seasonal. members or snowbirds. But yep. for people who travel a lot, the answer is maybe. Not always, but, you know, yeah. maybe they can be considered. Jason on Facebook says... What's a reasonable vacation or sabbatical policy for full-time ministers? Should more time in one place equal more time off? I feel like we talked about this. We before. have, but part of the reason, we've been asked this question before, yeah. and part of the reason that we semi-shut it down is, culturally speaking, I have a very different take yeah. on this. Than, yeah, you than, like like four months vacation over there. <laughs> so, <for> so, <laughs> holiday, sorry. Holiday. The, the US and the UK are very yeah. different when it comes to sick leave and holiday or vacation time, all this sort of stuff. So I'm just going to say what I'm used to. Okay. And I think it's perfectly reasonable. Okay. So this is what I am used to. I'm used to four weeks per year. As of, a, a, of holiday. Of, of holiday or vacation. Vacation, yeah up to a maximum of, of somewhere between six and nine Sundays off where I'm not responsible. So that could be the four weeks of annual leave and maybe a couple more Sundays. The idea is I don't have to find a preacher. The yeah. church will figure that out. Okay. Three days off after Christmas, because it's always a very busy time. So just that time between mm -hmm. Christmas and New Year that you get off. Every seven years, you get three months fully paid and usually creatively as well that the church will maybe gift a a vacation somewhere or gift a conference or, or, or gift some writing workshops or whatever. And that's not just three months off, put your feet up, but it's three months off, how can we fill you back up as a policy? So four weeks, six Sundays, three days after Christmas, every seven years, three months off. That would be relatively normal and even to some extent on the lighter side in the UK. I've seen churches offer up to six or seven weeks vacation. I've also been a part of a church that said, we don't care. You work so hard, it doesn't matter to us. If you need a week off, take a week off. And I think that one church, I maybe took eight weeks off total in a year. And that's because I was a sole pastor and a lot's going on. So then when I shifted looking at the American model, as far as I'm aware, every church is fewer than this that I've been around. It's customary. Two and, weeks and is kind of what's and, talked and, about. Yeah, and I don't think it's reasonable to, nope. to answer this question. It's customary because it's customary in the corporate world. I think but that even you that begin at two weeks yeah. vacation. I think it's unreasonable even for a beginning pastor to yep. only get two weeks out of the year. It's certainly unreasonable if some guy's been a pastor for you know, 10, 15, whatever years, and he goes to a new church and they say, yeah. we start with two weeks vacation. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. Even if you're starting at a place, 
I think three, four weeks, you're getting now more into the what's reasonable. And yes, to answer the second question, should more time in one place equal more time yes. off? I would say yes. Absolutely. The longer you have at a place, the more you've invested there. And honestly, the longer your ministry, the more time you need to yeah. recharge and recoup. And I think most churches, if they're thinking about longevity, like we want to keep these yeah. pastors, that you should invest in that as well. And yeah. that would tie into the sabbatical policy. Yeah. I don't know that there's a cookie cutter formula to no. the sabbatical policy, but generally five to seven years, yep. a month to three months, every five to seven years is a good, yeah. you know, it depends on how many pastors you've got, yeah. what size your church is, what's the burden on them if you're gone for yeah. extended amount of time. But I think usually around year five, five, six, or seven, at some point, there needs to be extended yeah. time away. Err on the side of generosity. Oh, yeah. From so, the church perspective, man, really invest yeah. in your, your pastor's If rest. you're thinking three weeks, push it to four weeks. If you're thinking two weeks, push it to three. Go go a step further. Pastors listening, don't abuse this. You know, don't don't just sure. start taking weeks off and not not communicating. It's it's a blessing to have this. And then just further on on top of that, the other thing I would say is this, that there are some churches out there, and I know because I've definitely spoken to at least one, who will not provide any vacation in your first year mm -hmm. or your first six months. And I'm just going to be as blunt as that's utter nonsense. Like you, <laughs> you can't expect someone to work 365 days with one day off a week and think you're getting the best from them. And that's yeah. just not loving to their family, not loving to them. So... I guess what I'm saying is I prefer the UK model on this. Even the corporate world would get something similar to four weeks. So I prefer that. I think that's part of our culture. I think that seems alien to American churches and American culture. I'm not saying one is right or wrong. I'm saying more vacation time is better for your pastor than less. Yeah. And that seems fairly obvious. I agree. Jonathan on Twitter says, what can US evangelicalism learn from global evangelicalism. <laughs> and this could have been a whole episode unto itself. Uh, yeah. So trying to limit yeah. ourselves here. I'll say a couple of things. One thing that I think we see in the global church, and in particular, I'm not even just thinking about U.S., but even just like Western evangelicalism, but yeah, U.S. kind of. We are so easily distracted mm. with different campaigns, politicization, when you tr you travel to these other places outside the U.S. and sometimes outside the Western world, you discover, like, they're not apathetic about what's going on in their countries politically and those sorts of things. Yeah. But it doesn't dominate their no. life in such a, I'll be, you know, frank, idolatrous way as it does here. Yep. And I know people don't really don't like it. American evangelicals don't like it when you say that we have a political I idolatry problem. But we do. Yep. And we do in the church as well. And you just, again— the people outside the U.S., the Christians, are not disinterested as a movement, as a, as a whole, as a church, but it just doesn't dominate their yep. thinking, doesn't rule their passions. It, it doesn't get wedded in with their idea of yep. Christianity, yep. like the nationalistic kind of approach to things, yeah. the patriotism that sometimes mm -hmm. bleeds into the, the church experience or the yep. worship service. It's fine if you are patriotic. I, I love our country, but the way that sometimes becomes a strange fire in our worship services and things, you just don't see that. Yeah. They have a focus on Christ and his yep. gospel yep. that we could really learn from. And if you do see it, it's always in a major negative. Hmm. Historically, if politics and faith and Christianity mix, it has always been a strong negative in Europe, certainly. Hmm. Here's something that I would say. 
is I would agree with that, that, that we tend to think in a different way. So I'm just going to pick on our own church here because I think that's more healthy than picking on other churches, if, if you will. <laughs> but in part of our membership, we talk about theological triage and we talk about what is of first importance, second importance, third importance, first importance being for salvation, second importance being theologies that we believe in. And, and in this church, most people would. Tertiary issues that, you know, ultimately we can disagree on this and, and it's not really a major issue. One of the things that came up in our church is a, a secondary issue was to potentially vote Republican, being that more often than not in America, the Republican Party will have Christian values somewhere within its policies. That was so alien to Miriam and I mm -hmm. that that would be a barrier to joining a church if we voted a different party. Because in the UK and in Europe, that doesn't come into the conversation. And in fact, the idea that you would vote for a different political party and that somehow that would change my view of you and how I would be as a family member in this church, that is so alien because one, you don't talk about politics, but it's not central to life. So one of the biggest things I would say is when you hear in a sermon, when you'll hear it in the States, you know, we have to love our neighbor, even those that vote Democrat, even those that vote Republican. <laughs> and yeah. you're thinking, what do you mean even though? Like that shouldn't even come into our thought process. And I would say when we've traveled around, it's, a, it's in America where that's a stronger issue than it is in Europe. The only other thing I would say is, again, in the US, there's a, a thing called the American dream. Not knocking it. There's a lot of positives of that, which is basically if, if you attempt it, you can achieve it, you know, and every person can start and grow wealth, grow family, grow home, all these things. That isn't, it's called the American dream because it's not really a European dream or, or around the world <laughs> dream. Yeah. And salaries are higher in the US. Desire to purchase your own home is higher in the US. Owning land is higher in the US than around the world. Meaning those things drive the culture. Certainly my experience outside of the US is those things don't drive culture, yeah. which means there's more understanding around poverty. There's more understanding about reaching out of your socioeconomic group. Yeah. And I think evangelicalism here does a disfavor to itself when it errs towards a middle-class, slight American dream. And I'm not saying it always does, but it does err towards that where I would say around the world, it actually errs more towards those that are of a lower class, of, of needing to be reached, of needing to be lifted up. And actually that's where society is ignoring and that's where we're going to push into. There's definitely cultural differences here. Yeah, and we've, I think, in a couple of previous episodes, actually, maybe even our two most recent episodes, last week and the week before, Rediscovering Prayer and then Can We mm. Do Life Together, one thing the global church... And I, and we're broad brushing here. There's obviously exceptions because I, I mean I was even thinking things like the prosperity gospel is so huge yeah. here, and well, it's also huge in I Africa was, and places you know, and Australia uh, as well. Right, right. So so we're having a broad brush here. But one thing that, and particularly third world cultures, but the global church, they do prayer mm -hmm. in a way that is different than the way the American church treats prayer. It seems more central to their existence, especially the the persecuted church. Yeah. You know, certainly the, the persecuted church. And then also the way, you know, other cultures, non-Western cultures do community, yeah. family. The idea of like, should we do life online? Like they already do life online. <laughs> it's, and it, it's actually, this has tied into 
as missiologists study like church planting movements and Mm -hmm. church growth movements, and they say, well, why do these things take off so quickly in India or in Asia? And what they discover is the matrix of of social connection is already tighter. The being in homes and the and they're able to multiply more quickly. They're not having to create a program Mm -hmm. to be in each other's lives because the fabric of their community is life on life yeah. already. So when yeah. you inject the experience of conversion and Christianity into it, yeah. there's not a cell there. They're not having to sell this, you know, yeah. we're in the in the West or in, in the U.S. in particular. you got to sell us on community because yeah. we don't live our lives that way as unconverted people. Now yeah. as converted people, you, you have to create a program for mm-hmm. us to be in each other's lives. So that's something that we I think we can learn from mm-hmm. the global church as well. Mm-hmm. Anything else to say on that before we move on to the- No, I, I'm good to move on. Okay. Angelo on Facebook. Angelo asks, what pitfalls would we look out for if our church is mainly older or elderly mm. folks? I mean, Angelo has set us up here for a largely negative answers. He doesn't say what's the what are the upsides yeah. of it. He says, What are the pitfalls? So we're acknowledge we're gonna acknowledge in the background. There's a lot of benefits to Can I just, having just mostly older folks in your church. Immediately say, press into it. Not every church needs to be actively trying to be younger. Be, well, sure. Praise God for the fact of who you've got now. In terms of pitfalls, yeah. one of the, your biggest issues is that as you attempt to make the church younger and more approachable, you will actively step on the toes of those elderly folk yeah. And you will have a, it's not a worship war, it is an age war where you will you will have elderly frustrated with younger, younger frustrated with elderly and very quickly move towards, well, what's the point in the elderly because the future of the church is younger. And that is just the exact wrong way of thinking. And it's such an easy pitfall to fall into. We have to modernize and make this church younger. You older folk are the problem. And yeah. that's a, it's just a really bad way of thinking. Yeah, two things came to mind. One is just from the leadership angle, and one is just from the culture angle. One pitfall culturally, I'll start there, is there's a tendency among older elderly folks to dwell in the past, to mm-hmm. remember the heyday of the church. And yeah. maybe the heyday is today, and it's just a vibrant church of older yeah. people. But by and large, if a church is majority older, they often look back to when there were young people, when there were kids, when they, you know, when they had families when their kids were home and mm. their kids were in youth groups together and they're thinking back on the past. And it's just a natural thing of, of nostalgia for all of us in any situation, not just church, but we tend to look back on our youth or the things of our younger years with fondness. And the mm. problem is you can get so fixated on that yep. that you're not enjoying where you are or you don't have much of a desire to see progress or change. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, progress, you want regress to the past. You're stuck in some kind of golden age. And sometimes it's difficult for, like culturally, for church made up of older folks to be able to move on or to have an optimism about the future. They kind of retire in some sense from the Christian life or just sort of shift into a lower gear because, well, those days are over. Mm -hmm. And they long more for what was in the past than what could be in the future for this church. Mm That can be a pitfall culturally is just sort of, hey, this church had a golden age. We're really preoccupied with that. The other pitfall just from a leadership strategy is to say, don't move too fast if you're making changes. You you need to be very patient. You need to be a good listener. You need to hold hands both physically and just pastorally, Mm -hmm. spiritually. 
to explain things, to help people feel led rather than pushed. If you're trying to make changes, we want to grow younger. There's different programs we want to implement. Don't push. Don't move too quickly. Yeah. For older f- folks, the world, they're experiencing the world moving so quickly around them all the time. Everything's changing. Technology, the culture, the traffic. I mean, everything. They're slowing down. Everything else feels like it's speeding up. And it really is. Church for old folks is like the one place where they can go and it feels like it's yeah. not going to change. It's the same. It's comfortable. It's family. I see the people I know. And when the church begins to change rapidly, they suddenly feel disoriented and lost yeah. and maybe even sometimes not useful. And yeah. is there a way when you need to make changes to bring them along, include yeah. them in conversations, yeah. put them in positions of input and, and value yeah. their insight and move slowly. And you know, when you, you realize the insight that they have, and, and this is a really, I don't mean this in a jokey way, I mean this in a serious way. I've done a lot of funerals now of older folk. And as I hear their story, as it's you know told at the funeral service, I'm astounded at the people of faith that the church has been carried along by and, and supported by and financially supported and, and the, the faith that's been shown through the years. And more and more, I now make it a point when there is a, an elderly individual that's passed away in their funeral, I say to the church very clearly, even if you didn't know them that well, you come out to this funeral yeah. because you're going to hear a story of faith. And it's those stories that make these individuals that are often looked at in, in a church as just kind of old and, and irrelevant as actually unbelievable prayer warriors, those that have had faith, those that have pushed the boundaries. And we just see their age and go, Meh, they're not really that important anymore. And, and I just think that's such a, such a negative, sinful way to view our older generation. And now I find myself actually drawn to them. I want to know how they have learned to go through the season of three young children because that's the season I'm in now. I'm asking now, you know, hey, your grandkids are teenagers. How does it feel to have grandkids or teenagers? I'm worried about just being a parent of teenagers and getting those words of wisdom. So don't fall into the pitfall of seeing an older generation in a church as a pitfall in itself. Yes. It can be such a blessing to have them. Yeah, for sure. Okay, last question. This comes from J-Rob, and J-Rob submitted his question via a review. Oh, there you go. On Apple Podcasts, which is another nudge to you. If you've not left a review, give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. J-Rob says or asks, what cautions do you have for churches who endeavor to be gospel-centered? What cautions do you have for churches who endeavor to be gospel-centered? I got a list. Wow. I mean, I haven't written it down, but it's in my head. Do you, you, I you just have, have one. Okay, go for it. I feel like I really should be more wise than have one. <laughs> no, Go- I mean, that's probably wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Here's the one thing. Here's the one thing. Gospel-centered does not mean toss everything else out. Okay. Because, yes, we're putting Christ right in the, right in the middle, right in the center of everything we do. It's our motivation. It's our reason. It's our message. It's what we have. But we have a tendency that when we lean into that, we'll just throw everything else out. You know, lots of talk about Holy Spirit. No, we're Jesus-centered. And what about the Father? No, we're Jesus-centered. What about the Old Testament? No, we, we're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's not gospel-centered. Mm. Gospel-centered is taking the entire message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the entire scriptures, the entire deity of, of who God is, and saying right at the center of all of that, is the wonderful salvation, good news message of Jesus Christ. And everything's pointing to that. Not everything's irrelevant, but everything's pointing to it. So I would caution people, 
not to avoid preaching on the Holy Spirit or God the Father, not to avoid the Old Testament scriptures, not to avoid the law and just saying the law's out the windows, not needed, but actually to see how all of that points to Jesus. And in, in essence, that foundation makes gospel-centeredness stronger because everything points to it. Yeah. It's, That's my one thing. No, it's, no, you're right. It's gospel-centered, not gospel-only. So you're, you are preaching the law and parody, like, yeah, all these things. What We're keeping the, the finished work of Christ at the center, but it's not the only mm-hmm. message. Along those lines, so I've got, I just went ahead and jotted them down so I keep on track. I've got three cautions that I think are tendencies that could be issues that I see recurring in churches that are trying to do the gospel-centered thing. The first one is somewhat related to this gospel-onlyism kind of idea. It's that we're gospel-centered in buzzwords or jargon. Uh, yeah. Like, we like the tribe. Yep. When you ask the average person, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? Some answer they give is in relation to who they listen to, yeah. uh, what conferences they go to, what publishers, you know, books they buy, mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. What tribe they identify with. And that's great. We all have tribes. Tribes are fine. But if that's all it is, mm-hmm. it's actually not going to be anything meaningful or substantive for your people. It's not going to impact their growth in Christ-likeness. If it's just, hey, we're a gospel-centered church mm-hmm. with gospel-centered groups and gospel-centered curriculum. and Okay, but what does that mean? Yeah. You need to actually make sure it actually means something. There are implications for this thing. And, you know, I've outlined some of those in previous episodes and a lot of my writing as well. Mm-hmm. But anyway, just make sure it's not jargon. Yeah. That you're not just buying into some kind of buzzword fad, but it actually you actually know what it means to be gospel-centered. Yeah. And that becomes your ministry motivation. Secondly, you should expect, what cautions do I have? You should expect that if you actually employ the implications of gospel centrality, expect people not to like it. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) not everybody, but our flesh yearns for law, and you will have people who do not understand. They come to church wanting, you know, busy work given to them. They want to hear more of the to-dos than they do the dones. And it's going to bother them, and yes. they'll complain, and they'll push back, and they'll say they're not growing. They'll say we need more meat. They'll say all sorts of things like that. And you need to be careful that you're not abdicating responsibility to faithfully exposit the word mm. and give good and sound instruction and teaching and even exhortation towards the imperatives, obedience to God. But by and large, if you're doing the gospel-centered thing, it will rub people the wrong way yep. because we just have this inner self-righteousness. Our heart longs for the gospel. Mm. Our flesh longs for the law, and if they're not getting this sort of thing that's going to coddle their self-righteousness, mm. it's going to rub people the wrong way. Yep. So that's going to happen. You should expect that to happen. Don't be surprised when it happens. You may be surprised at who it's happening with, but don't be surprised when that happens. Third and final caution I would give is be careful about being legalistic about gospel centrality. Yep. <laughs> One of the things that we often do as leaders and pastors trying to do the gospel-centered thing is we're constantly measuring how gospel-centered our people are. Yep. I don't think you're very gospel-centered. You're not gospel-centered enough. Which or, in itself is law. Which is in itself law. That's not gospel-centered. Nope. And you can do it in your preaching and teaching. If you find yourself drifting into imperatives about mm-hmm. gospel centrality, you need to center on the gospel more. You should really orient your life more around yeah. grace. And yeah. Those are all true things. Those are all good imperatives. But be careful that they don't sort of, Martin Luther once said, that the chief art of the devil is to turn the gospel into law. Yeah. And we can do that about gospel centrality if it becomes more about the imperatives towards gospel centrality than it does actually showing people mm-hmm. the glory of Christ. Yeah. So be careful about that, not just in your preaching and teaching, but just in your own heart and mind. Are you constantly looking at your church and thinking, 
they're not where they need to be. They're not gospel-centered enough. They're not gracious enough. Yeah. Well, those aren't very gracious attitudes to to have in your own heart about your church. They could be accurate. It's fine to have that assessment. But if that's Mm -hmm. sort of the dominating spirit or or consideration of your church, that's not a gospel-centered. You need to be gospel-centered in person, not just in philosophy. Yeah. So those are the three major things. I I think think the chapel the other day someone said that churches are looking for actual ministers not hypothetical ministers Mm. i want to say we're looking for actual gospel-centered people not hypothetical gospel-centered people gospel-centered in in word only but not deed or thought all right hey that was a good mailbag episode we got some good good we need people to keep sending questions in absolutely we'll work on that email we'll see if we can get that publicized get an email where you can submit questions at any time if you enjoyed this podcast and the podcast in general, dear listener, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church. 